what you know, Pete out, out, outright refuses, I think he's described in the stage directions as like selfish and mean. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's a, a small bad time guy. mobster. He's the bad bully. guy. He's the bad, <laughs> the bad guy. Welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back in. We're excited to get to talk to uh, each other about the the play of the day, but also all of you out there in podcast land. Thank you for joining the conversation around around plays. It's it's just fun to be able to still talk about these these dramatic works. Yeah, conversations about plays, about especially after having seen plays, are just some of my favorite things in the world. And it's so hard to do that now, right? And and the world's opening back up. People are going to get to see more plays hopefully in the next whatever six to eight months a year we're going to get back to full swing and that's going to be great but in the meantime this is a lovely way to just have conversations even in lieu of not being able to see those plays on stage yeah, yeah, and that's certainly the case with this play. Like this is a, this play is a play to be seen, uh, and 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 so so I'm looking forward to the day to go out and see it. But for now, we will we will hold it over with having read it in a conversation about What of the Night by Maria Irene Fornes. Yeah, it's a really interesting script. It's a script that you know almost requires conversation to be. To, to, to really mine the incredible depths. Marie Irene Fornes, we talked about her play, Letters from Cuba. She's an incredible playwright, an incredible... I, I read an interview about some of the designers that she had worked with who said that she was an incredible visual artist, too. I mean, she's a, she's a playwright and a director and a teacher, of course, but... Uh, you can look in her plays and really get a sense of what an incredible visual artist she must have been. I mean, the plays mm-hmm. are, even on the page, incredible pieces of visual art. Now, the, the visual part of it just exists in your imagination when you're reading it, but the, what she sparks in your imagination is incredible. Yeah, down to like the staging of it too, and and oftentimes staging is stage manager's notes. However, in this play, there's some that are like, like really particular to the plot that we'll get to eventually. So so yeah, it's it's the the kind of visionary playwriting spatial awareness uh, that she brings to the plays is, is is really great. Yeah, and and it I just think it'll be a fascinating conversation if you've read this play, if you've seen it. It there's there's a lot in it, and we're this is this is the right kind of script to say on the front end rather than the back end like we usually do. We will not be able to get to everything oh, yeah. as Jackson will cover in his synopsis this is actually more than one play that we're going to try <laughs> to talk about in this condensed amount of time today so I'm, I'm looking forward to that and I'm also looking forward to something coming up in a couple of weeks which is our themed month that will be April of this season we will cover four scripts all in the same in this case from the same kind of general period of time obviously when you talk about the Greek plays they're over many different periods within that that period. But in general, nowadays, we can look back and say these are the ancient Greek plays. So we're going to cover four ancient Greek plays in the month of April. We are, you know, we're calling it Master's Month. It's <laughs> We talked about it last year. It's just for the M. We yeah. know those aren't the only Masters. It's a very small group of the Masters in all of time that are yep. great players. Maria Irene Fornes today is undoubtedly one of the Masters in, in, in theater arts. So Absolutely. We had to do something. I mean, you had to say something with an M. 
them, right? Right. So we're we just, we're stretching we the the limits of our alliteration with <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with the themed months, but we're sticking with it at least for this one with Masters Month uh, around for g- Greek plays. So uh, look forward to that. We will be putting out the list of that if we haven't already. Uh, time is a little wibbly wobbly, wobbly for me right now. Uh, so so keep an eye out for those plays, uh, and ex- I'm excited to get to get to engage them as well because they they are classics as it were. Yeah, we we will we'll cover two comedies and two tragedies. I think that's that's all we're going to say for now as we kind of select and arrange that month. Those of you who are patrons, I'll kind of I'll pitch in for Jackson to talk uh, to do the Patreon talk, but if those of you who are patrons, you uh, may already know what the scripts are. It depends on how quickly we get all that around, but I'm pretty sure you will know what the scripts coming up are. And if you are a patron of the show, thank you so much for being one. Uh, we we love getting to do this show. We love getting to talk about places, as we've mentioned already. And it's it's made possible by all of you patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. Uh, there, there are various costs associated with the show that we, we that we are, uh, you know, buying scripts, hosting, you know, time involved. So if you're looking for a way to help out the show, to be sure that we keep getting to have these sorts of conversations, that we keep getting to find weird alliterative ways to say uh, M-themed months, um, <laughs> you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast and look at becoming a patron over there. We have a number of different tiers of membership, the lowest one being just $1, $12 over the course of a year. You get actra- access to patron-only posts over there, uh, uh, which include the kind of uh, foreknowledge of uh, the coming plays. So if you're looking for a way to get involved in the show to, to be sure that we keep having these conversations... Patreon.com slash podcast is a great way to do it. Thank you to everyone who is a patron already, and we will see you over there. And now, back to the script. Here we go. All righty. What of the night is... In order to, to to do the context, I have to take away a little bit from the synopsis, which is just at, at the basic level to say it's actually four plays. Uh, it's it's four one acts that combine for you know we read a bunch of different reviews in preparation and they all say it's like some said two and a half hours some said three and a half hours so it's like you know it's about a three hour theater experience of four one act plays and these plays were created at different times and then put together for this theatrical experience they were all written between you know 1985 to 1990 or so um, two of the, the the beginning and the end one act of the four were written first. The first one is called Nadine. It's gone through a couple different title changes over its life. Now we know it as Nadine. That one was written in 1986, or at least first produced in 1986 at the Padua Hills Festival in Los Angeles. Then the play that ends the collection of plays, the uh, one-act play called Hunger, was written or produced first, at least, in 1988 by the Ungod Arts in uh, New York City. Then the two middle plays, Springtime and Lust, they were added to that fuller version and then the whole thing was presented at Milwaukee Rep in 1989. Uh, The play was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 1990, which does make Maria Irene Forney's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated playwright. And she also is, I think we said the last time that we talked about her, she's like won a ridiculous number of Obie Awards for both her playwriting and her directing. I mean, she's, she's an incredible theater artist from that latter half of the 20th century. This play, again, 1990 Pulitzer Prize nominated. That was the year that August Wilson's The Piano Lesson won, which we have also talked about on this podcast. Um, 
with like with most of Marie Irene Forney's plays, it, it's underproduced. There are not a lot of productions of this play. The, the, the vast majority of them are at the collegiate level. Um, lots of colleges will do this play. It's got a nice size cast, some really great parts. It's got the kinds of themes and kind of a look at a specific style and theatrical voice that you would want to do for the purposes of educational theater. There, there are productions that you see. The Vagrancy did it in Los Angeles in 2014. Stage Left Theater did it in Chicago in 2017. But but Forney's remains kind of one of the more important playwrights from that later half of the 20th century to not get many productions. She's an underrepresented playwright from that period. Um, her most popular play is Fifu and Her Friends. That one still does do the rounds uh, a fair amount. But outside of that, you, you, you're unlikely to see a production of this play near you, which is a shame because the, I think the play gets a lot of life on its feet. I was able to watch as much as I could of clips and bits and pieces of plays and the what's on the page, which is already an incredible imaginative experience, really achieves, as all scripts do, but I think in this case specifically, achieves its full life when you see it on the stage. Comparisons to this play have been made to plays like Mother Courage, uh, to plays like Angels in America. Um, Carol Churchill, kind of, kind of Churchill-esque um, is maybe a way if you if you don't have a sense of the style Beckett-esque. At the back of my script, there's a really touching tribute from Carol Churchill herself, actually. She says uh, to about Marie Irene Fornes, Carol Churchill says, When I feel sick of plays, writing, theater, the whole business, I sometimes think of yours and get a flicker of what it is I like about it all. Which is a touching Aww, tribute, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that, that's just <laughs> lovely. And and from one of the great playwrights of all time, Carol Churchill, to another of the great general theater artists of all time, Maria Irene Forneth. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to kind of tie in the 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 synopsis of these four plays, um, as as, as or four plays in a play. They they are they are one play. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> four, four plays is a play. It's like whoa, right? right. <laughs> plays within plays. Um, uh, as Jacob said, these are four uh, one acts that have been brought together into one script, um, and and they take place over. 60-ish years. Uh, it starts in 1938 in an economically depressed place in the Southwest is the, uh, is the, uh, the stage direction note. Um, and it concerns the live, uh, or the lives of this family, or at least partially. Um, we, we track this family through it, through this whole time. We are introduced in the first scene, which is titled Nadine to Nadine, who is the mother of Charlie and Rainbow and uh, later on, Ray. We'll get back to Ray in a minute. Um, the uh, this family is living in economic poverty and 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 oppression. Um, there, uh, Charlie is stealing clothes for this kind of small time mob boss named Pete. Um, and the the opening scene, he's bringing clothes that he's stolen to him, and Pete is beating him up for it not being enough. Um, Nadine is struggling to provide for her family. She is a single parent. Um, as I mentioned, she has uh, Charlie and Rainbow and, a, and an infant daughter, Lucille, um, and she's struggling to uh, provide for them. And uh, to do so, she uh, works as a prostitute, um, or at least part time in that in that role, as well as a, a caretaking her family. 
Um, uh, she that the whole first scene is uh, kind of tracking or or setting the uh, the stage with this family. They also have a kind of an add-on child in Birdie. Um, Birdie is an orphan from the street who has been welcomed into the family um, and is is uh, engaged to Charlie. Um, uh, they they're going to be married quite young. Everyone is very young. Like sixteen is Charlie's age, so everyone's very young. This this first scene is and really all the scenes. I think I'll I'll, I'll make this statement. All this all of these scenes are are noting oppression and perseverance in the face of that oppression um, and, and the lengths that you go to persevere in the face of oppression. Uh, the scene uh, develops between Birdie is wanting to get out of this world on the streets. Charlie is kind of tied to the family and the caretaking of the family. Uh, Pete uh, is is just a, a, a serial sex addict and abuser. Um, he he uh, is, pursues Birdie. Pete, or, or, yeah, Pete stand, or pursues Birdie. Birdie stands up to him. Charlie stands up to him. And eventually Birdie has to leave. Uh, Char- Charlie stays behind to try to try to caretake his family a little bit, and Birdie Birdie decides to leave. That's the broad sweep. And of they that do. First scene. Charlie and Birdie do get married for whatever that means mm-hmm. for like a sixteen-year-old and a fourteen-year-old right, in the right. Great Depression. I, I I doubt they had like a church wedding and and have a marriage certificate, but for them, they have they say that they were married. Um, and and Birdie walks out on, I guess, her young marriage um, and off into the world. And then the next scene picks up about 20 years later in 1958 in a small eastern city. And we follow the story of Rainbow, the kind of younger sister or the younger daughter of, of Nadine. She uh, is uh, has fallen in love with a new character, Greta. Who uh, They are both around 20 in their in their 20s. Um, and uh, they've fallen in love and they're trying to... Uh, the, the, the struggle of this scene is Greta is ill um, in, I believe, an unspecified way, but something something quite significant. Uh, she she uh, can't function all that well on her own, and so Rainbow is trying to provide for her. Um, the way that she ends up being able to provide for her is kind of going back to some of her street sense. She uh, steals a watch from someone, and uh, she thinks she gets away with it. She tries to sell it, but is caught by that someone. That someone turns out to be Ray. I told you we'd get back around to Ray. Um, Ray is this uh, businessman type who eventually uh, begins to proposition Rainbow. Now, it's unclear about how uh, you know how far that relationship goes, but we know for sure that Rainbow is taking pictures of herself uh, naked and sending them to him, or that's that's part of their arrangement. Um, this brings up some conflict between Greta and Rainbow. Greta, uh, Rainbow says that she doesn't mind doing this as long as she's providing for Greta. And again, the question is asked, what are the lengths to which we will persevere in the face of oppression to, to take care of the ones we love? Um, Ray uh, eventually uh, begins to pursue more than just pictures. He comes over and something happens between him and Greta. Likely, um, she he, he comes over and, and there's some sort of... We don't know. We don't know exactly what happens, but the 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 relationship between Greta and Rainbow is affected by it. Um, the eventually the two of them end up having to leave. Uh, a, a really touching letter is left by Rain or leave each other. A very touching letter is left by Rainbow saying to Greta how much she still loves her. Um, and 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 that's the that's the end of that scene. There's so much more going on in that scene that I want to get into. I'm not going to do it now. Yeah, it's it's a really <laughs> touching one of the four plays. I mean it. it 
they're all incredible in their own right, but that one really stands out for its kind of simple human story brilliance. Yeah, definitely. Scene three is titled Lust. Um, and, and this, this one has a, a lot of sex in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. <laughs> she called it lust? <laughs> the, um, uh, uh, Ray, we get introduced to Ray a lot more. We discover that Ray is in fact, in this scene, we, we discover that he is in fact, um, the kind of lost child of Nadine. She had to give up a child at one point we learn in the first scene and he is in fact, um, her lost child. And we, 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 he's been adopted. He's a businessman. He, uh, is is kind of working through the uh, structures of his business. We meet Joseph uh, in the first scene. Joseph and Ray have sex on a couch as they're talking over a uh, like business as deal. They're like doing a deal. It's so odd. There, Ray is yeah. like trying to get him to give him money to take care of somebody, and and like while they're negotiating how that's going to work, they're also having sex on the couch, which is. Bizarre. <laughs> it is. It is a little bizarre. And then subsequently, like no, no, not before the end of that scene, if I remember correctly, uh, we're introduced to Helena, who comes into the room. Helena is Joseph's daughter, and uh, and Joseph asks Ray if he wants to marry Helena, and Ray says yes, and that's pretty much it. Uh, the next scene uh, is is uh, Ray and Helena together. Um, the the scene uh, this this whole scene kind of digs into Ray and the 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 type of life that Ray is living. He is likely addicted to sex in some way as well. Uh, we get into uh, his dream sequence, which are all very sexual dreams. Um, and and he, he's, he's, his machinations are taking over Joseph's company. Eventually, by the end of the scene, uh, he takes over, yeah, he takes over Joseph's uh, whole company. And yeah, so he, he's, he's taking over Joseph's company, like you say. And then there's like this also parallel of like his marriage with Joseph's daughter, Elena, is really bad. And uh, he mistreats her a lot. So at the same time, he's getting this this success in business, which has been established as this kind of masculine world is how she's painting it. Um, he's, he's also mistreating the the one of the important women in his life and then he's his sister or or not his sister but birdie who was married to his brother birdie from the first scene uh remembering that birdie's not his sister is important as jackson and i discussed before the recording <laughs> mildly was the, important the, the orphan who married his brother in way back in scene one and then walked out at the end of that play Right, right. We learn that Ray is finding more of his family. We learn that he's found Charlie. Um, that Birdie is is they're they're kind of all beginning to find each other and connect to each other. Uh, towards the end of the play, he cheats on uh Helena with Birdie, as as Jacob mentioned. So so yeah. And then the the final uh scene of the play is this kind of greedy takeover of Ray. I, I think greed would be a word that could uh could inhabit the character of Ray. Um, he kicks Joseph out of his company. He takes it over Joseph is kind of hauled out of the office or not hauled out of the office but people are coming to take him away from the office and he collapses on the floor um that is the uh, oh, and then then of course the the last scene or the last scene of the play. These are all kind of very small little vignette scenes. Is Helena kind of reflecting on her her relationship with her father and and the degree to which it is it is sunk? 
The last scene is like a post-apocalyptic economic disaster hellscape. Um, (laughs) And it is that jarring. Um, The the scene uh, concerns uh, the characters Charlie, Birdie, Ray, a new character, Reba, who is uh, connected to Ray in some way, and an ominous angel, simply titled with the character name Angel. Uh, Birdie has come to kind of find her her um, kind of family, right? So Charlie and and Ray are living in this uh, kind of shelter. Uh, you get the sense that everyone's living on the street now, that there's scarcity of resources, that, that whatever, you know, maybe this greed that fueled the business economy has led to this uh, lack of sustenance for people. And you you kind of, it's lost in bureaucracy. There's some, it's, 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 it's the most, uh, it's the most absurd of the scenes. You have Charlie uh, kind of being this bureaucratic person with a bunch of forms that he needs people to fill out. They're trying to talk about the the benefits of standing in line versus taking basically setting something, standing in line for food versus like setting something to keep your place in line for food. Um, Birdie tries to uh, come and bring bread to them. She tries to kind of be this light to them and eventually by the end of the scene succumbs to this uh, culture that is in this shelter house. And she's um, she's coming from, we learn, like a compound. And as with all the plays, the detail of... Uh, uh, of facts, like explaining every little piece of the worlds that Fornese is imagining is just not what she does. Uh, and so you don't know much about the compound. You, you assume because of the way Birdie's dressed and the fact that she's the one with the resources that she, maybe this is some sort of gated community for the rich where they still have provisions and then out in the, the rest of the world, people live in these kind of bureaucratic warehouses of homelessness. And, and Ray, we know, has been kicked out of the compound, and that's why Bertie has come to find him. Um, so you learn these sort of little bits and pieces that you try to pull together about what the post-apocalyptic kind of world is that she's imagined. Yeah, 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 yeah. Notably, the last line of the play is uh, spoken by Reba, who is this new character that we have been introduced into in this scene. And in what is essentially a stagecrafty moment, Reba is, or at least in the uh, in the casting of the play that I have, Reba is the same actress who played Nadine, the mother of these characters at at the um, at the start of the show. So the 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 word at the beginning, or the the we learn about Nadine at the beginning. We see the her family through the ages, and we have a new character who is not Nadine, but is played by the same voice or has the same voice of Nadine speaking over these characters at the very end. This kind of plea for care from the angel who has brought them food um plea plea for care for birdie who has now kind of succumbed to this this new culture that she is living in yeah and and the same actor playing reba who plays nadine is, is an interesting thing because reba as the character is like ray's new romantic Girlfriend. life partner we, yeah we, we do think each of these plays comes with the the world of the last play being part of it. Like we're advancing through time and all the plays are consistent. Um, and so I guess Ray has left Helena or Helena has died. We don't exactly know. He's he's very sad about her loss, whatever. Yeah. But he's found a new partner named Reba. And in the previous play about Ray, Lust, he has a kind of 
a, a really intimate, vulnerable scene where he describes remembering his his birth mother, Nadine, holding him and sort of missing that and trying to refine his family. So then at the end, that his new romantic partner who's kind of with him in the post-apocalyptic hellscape, as you described, uh, right. the fact that it's the same actor playing Nadine, I imagine, is is a, a nice sort of poignancy connection with this longing that Ray has for that that original point in his life. Right. And this play is is just kind of chock full of that sort of symbolism, right? There's just so much uh, symbolic nature to this play. The 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 various scenes, who's cast in them, uh, the, the, the kind of almost repetition of characters gives it this uh, poetic uh, feel this this mystical feel. There's the dream sequence for heaven's sake. So the, it's it's very in the realm of the symbolic, the mystical, the weird tendrils that tie all these characters together throughout time. Yeah. So so the general sweep of all four of these plays is that we we meet this family in the first scene with a mother Nadine and then some children and a person who's not her child but is part of the family and then the subsequent three plays kind of zoom in on those people at later points in their lives. The second play is a zoom in on Rainbow much later in her life. The third play is a zoom in on Ray much later in his life. Then the fourth play brings some of those people back together much, much later in their lives when they're very old. And so you fo- sort of follow over whatever, 60 years, 70 years, this family through what Fornies imagines is the disintegration of the American capitalist landscape and what that kind of does to people. In a, in a review of the, the Vagrancy production in 2014 uh, for a, an online publication about L.A. theater called Stage Raw, the reviewer's name is Sarah Tuft. She wrote this sentence, which I thought really encapsulated the play nicely. She says... Um, the celebrated Cuban-American writer Maria Irene Forney's play is about sex, power, institutional failure, human frailty, betrayal, dreams, and madness. In other words, it's a play about money. Hmm. That's uh, that. That's a good insight. Like that is that is uh, some most of what these characters are fighting against. For for it's it's what pushes these characters to do the things that they do is the pursuit or the lack of money and 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 the things that money brings. Right, money brings security. Money brings uh, health for your partner. Money brings success or in the in the eyes of the world. So so uh, these these are the things that they are negotiating for uh, hurting. people people for caring for people for um from and and that i mean that starts right away in scene scene one where where there's this kind of brutal beating scene from the mobster pete on charlie who is trying to bring bring uh clothes to him and keep a little for himself right what lengths are you willing to go to try to achieve this safety this 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 pursuit of money and and in in a world where money is the dominating factor as fornies imagines you get these what 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 ends up standing out are these sort of little moments of human kindness that don't have a lot to do with money and that show kind of a deeper person a more a more soulful person i think some some people have talked about the plays Fornis kind of imagining the disintegration of the soul in the world of money and when when you have moments where that doesn't happen it stands out in the first play a moment that was really 
just fascinating and moving to me. Charlie has brought all these clothes that he's stolen to Pete and has been sort of beaten into giving them over one by one. And he's described that he, it's not just like he stole them from a store. He mugged somebody and pulled the clothes off of that person to bring. And um, Pete is asking, well, you know, where's the underwear? And, and, and Charlie pulls out an undershirt and socks. And Pete goes, well, what about the boxers? What about the shorts? And Charlie says, I left him those. I didn't want to leave him. I didn't want to take that from him. He was cold. He was afraid. He was humiliated. I didn't want to do that to him. And Pete beats him for showing that little bit of kindness. And in the midst of the beating, Charlie's refrain, I wouldn't want that done to me. I wouldn't want that done to me. And you get moments like that where the characters show the the pieces of their soul that are the things that slowly disintegrate in the course of this sort of painful, disturbing disintegration that you see. Like in, in springtime, uh, the the relationship between Rainbow and Greta is beautiful. It's, it's caring. It's touching. The lengths to which Rainbow is willing to go to care for Greta are, I mean, just heartrending. They're incredible. But what's the play about? It's about the fact that Rainbow and Greta don't have the money to care for her, right? I mean, that's something we, you know, the play is written in like the late 80s and, and like, what is what is it now? 30, 40 years later, it's like right. people still don't have the money to get their health care. And, and you can see Forney's talking about that problem way back then. Yeah, this play was, yeah, this play written in the late 80s, you know, uh, Fornace is directing this play uh, in the 90s and saying things that, in that time frame that carry straight over to now, right? Like the the, the sort of, uh, the taking advantage of, of, of like, the I'll, I'll, I'll use the vernacular, there's, there's all sorts of complications, but the 1% taking advantage of the 99%, that the, the vast imbalance in wealth and, 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 the people who are forgotten, right? Fornace is writing in a time, writing about a city where there are just loads of forgotten people living on the street. And that's still the case now. There are so many people who are just kind of forgotten about that are that are uh, victims of the kind of devolution of capitalist structure, of 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 greed, right? And that's that's I think how Ray personifies the the kind of undercurrent of this play for us. You see greed personified. Not only that though, you see the effect that greed has on a person. And and the 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 kind of the the brokenness that's in him too. He doesn't come out unscathed from his greed. It's not like he just excels and buys yachts and stuff. Um he is he is deeply affected by the effects of his greed on the world. Yeah, looking at the the difference in who Ray is in the life that he lives in the third play in Lust and comparing that to the the rest of the family members we meet who are uh, by and large severely impoverished is a is a fascinating look because you know in the first play they're they're truly barren impoverished they live outdoors they they have just scrapped together furniture that barely gets them through they they don't have any money for food they have to work Nadine has to work as an occasional prostitute to make any money for them to have anything and yet the the family cares for each other, right? I mean, one of the major tensions 
of Act One is the family choosing to do things that actively hurt them to care for each other. When Nadine begs Pete to pay Charlie more, to be kinder to Charlie, to not beat Charlie, to give them money for medicine for their sick baby, what Pete outright refuses, I think he's described in the stage directions as like selfish and mean. You know, he's he's, he's a a small-time mobster. He's the bad guy. He's the bad (laughs) bad guy. When When he refuses money, Nadine then asks, to you know she performs sexual acts on him to get him to pay up that clearly not something she's comfortable with clearly uh, a terrible situation um but she does it to to take care of her family charlie who is married to birdie at 16 and and 14 uh, birdie's gonna leave she says i want something more out of life she's about to head out of there she's in an abusive situation with pete just like pete abuses everybody and so she's gonna take off she asks charlie to come with her charlie says no I got to stay and take care of my family. My family needs me. Nadine needs me. The baby needs me. Rainbow needs me. I I have to stay. You get that caring for each other. Of course, the second play is all about sacrifice to care for each other. What is Rainbow willing to do to care for the love of her life, Greta, and and vice versa? And then you come to the third play, Lust, and you look at Ray, this this child who was given away by Nadine as a baby because she couldn't care for him. In fact, she couldn't even, like create enough nutrition in her body to give him milk to eat. I mean, she they were so impoverished. So she gives Ray away to an adoption agency. So he's never met any of them. And he's grown up as a financial success. And he is, I mean, ab- abusing and cruelly treating all of the familial loving connections that Fornes has looked at from this family in poverty from previous two plays. He's, he's in a marriage that was basically a, a, a cattle trade, right? Joseph, will, will you marry my daughter? And then later in the play, Joseph describes his daughter as like, a, uh, you know, he, you, uh, you can know she's well-bred because she's beautiful, like literally his cattle. Right. And he's married, so Ray's married to her, but he mistreats her through the whole play. He has an affair with Birdie later on in the script. When he, in the dream sequence, the one thing that causes him a lot of anxiety is when money is burned in front of him. I mean, he's He's become enthralled and and in addicted to this world of success. Well, and con- yeah, consumed by his work to the point that he's never not thinking about it. He's he's told to take a vacation at one point, and he just simply can't. Um, he can't connect with Helena. He 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 like says straight up, "I've never said I love you. I said the only thing I care about is my work." Um, that like that is the kind of ravenous hunger uh, and greed that that Ray has, which you see in the dreams too. A lot of his dreams have to do with this this hunger that will not be abated, right? Like he 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 just is driven and driven and driven and 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 can't stop. It gets to the point that he, he you're right. He can't find connection with any of the people that he's around. He just kind of has to have the next next thing that's in front of him. So Birdie shows up in in or at least Birdie says she shows up to to be of help to Helena but Ray almost immediately has to have Bertie and they have an affair um they the uh the the business that Joseph uh, kind of welcomes him in, into Joseph has his own problems with work he and his own problems as a character but Joseph but but Ray has to have that business and so he goes about the work of taking it away from Joseph and the hunger that Ray has is it's fascinating to me because of of course the the name of the final play is hunger 
Yeah. And you wonder about the connections there. This is where that that idea is introduced by Ray. He's he's in a in a scene with Helena in their bedroom. Um, they're just holding hands. I don't actually think they ever have a sexual relationship on stage, even though he does with like every other character in that play on stage. Yeah. But not with Helena and his <laughs> wife. Anyway, he's in a in a, a monologue. He's in an emotionally vulnerable moment, which is odd for him. He says he's talking about his adoptive parents. He says, What I got from them would have sufficed, i.e., they've taken care of him, provided for his material needs. But I'd come to them with a fever, a fever placed in my heart by my mother. A fever that has never left me. Helena says, an illness? Ray says, a hunger. Helena, for food? Ray, yes, for food. Helena, how I wish I knew what I hunger for. Hmm. That's like, so So in general, I feel like that is such a powerful statement on culture in general. Right, that that Fornis is making uh, from the mouth of from 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 the mouth of both of them, right? Both the um, the, this this consuming hunger that he's articulating, but also the gosh, I just don't know why I'm even hungry. Like, what what am I? What am like? I I, I feel this in me, right? I feel this drive, and I can't like ignore it. But I just don't know what I want from it. Uh, For, Fornis's quote way back, uh, I think it was in the nine yeah nineteen ninety was a quote that I found from her. Uh, she was talking about uh, the the play that she, that she was directing this play. Uh, she says, "I fear for our future. I feel that we are becoming greedy and heartless. I don't understand what is leading us to these feelings, and I can't imagine anything but disaster being the outcome of our mindlessness and heartlessness." And and that that mindlessness aspect of not even knowing what you hunger for, uh, I think, is is tied into those two characters. Absolutely. And you've, you've rightly pointed out that the dream sequence, which occupies a good half of that third play, is really a sequence of hunger. The first several scenes of the dream are scenes of um, kind of wild sexual fantasy from Ray uh, with, with people of all genders. Of course, we've already seen him have sex with a man on stage and not have sex with his wife. I guess you can imagine that that's happening, but you know, the, the, he's in a marriage relationship too. And later he has an affair with the woman who was married to his brother a long, long time ago. So he, he has a fairly sex-fueled life and his dreams are these wild sexual fantasies. You could see a hunger there. And then there's this kind of odd, elaborate scene in like a Chinese restaurant where he's trying to order from the menu, literally satiate his hunger with food at the same time watching a little girl playing outside the window and so hungry, unable to order and communicate that he's like eating the menu. And then it goes on even further and a boy comes and burns money on stage in front of him. He can't keep his hands in his pocket. He can't look at it. I mean, you see this idea that there is this fuel in him to acquire to fill a void with something, money, sex, success. And I don't think it's any surprise that after that wild dream uh, of hunger, at least the way the audience perceives it, after that wild dream, he takes over Joseph's business. He mistreats his father-in-law who, you know, through mistreatment of his daughter, which we we should definitely talk about the gender piece of all this, but through mistreatment of his daughter and all that, Joseph has invited Ray into the family, into his business, and Ray's hunger for satiation, for uh, 
to fill this void now has led to his father-in-law being his business being taken over and to the point where his father-in-law attempts to commit suicide on stage, right? He goes into his office after his business was taken over, pulls a gun and, and Ray manages to stop him. And then there's this elaborate sort of surreal scene where you see the father kind of slowly disintegrate, his clothes melt off and all this stuff. And that I think eventually dies. And then Helena's nice little touching point. But the, the, there is this, Ray is like a consumer is sort of what that play is and what he consumes and what the effects are of his consumerism of all things on the people around him kind of occupies this this play that comes right before the play about an economic apocalyptic kind of disaster. Well, right. It's it's a movement from the particular to a more universal message, right? The, the, the people around him are affected by his greed and his hunger. But then you see the, the, the systematic problem as well. It's not just a bad actor. It's a systematic problem of this, this whole culture of greed that Ray is a part of destroys the world. And you see the, the, the ramifications of it on him and on the, on the people around him. And, and you understand that the, the entire world around them is coming apart as a result of this rampant greed. There's there's hunger all over the place now, and it's not just the metaphysical or the 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 uh, the spiritual hunger, if you will, but it is a physical hunger. There is there is a shortage, and and people have to live in that space that is a result of the greed of the system. That is the result of the greed of the individuals, but within a system of 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 power and taking advantage of of the oppressed yeah so let's pivot a little bit and and look at this intersection of financial capitalist greed power and gender which is i think a, a pretty substantial part of this play of course in the first play it opens with nadine being forced to prostitute herself to care her for her family and pete actively trying to get these young teenage girls to prostitute themselves for him um to take care of you know so there, there is an intersection there of the way that money forces women into positions of needing to sell their bodies of of being you know severely impacted by that kind of world and then the second play um the same thing really happens to rainbow with ray when when ray catches her stealing his watch that happens off stage we learn that rainbow has been forced to take risque pictures with men um we don't know if there's a sexual act involved beyond that but the idea of in order to care for her, the love of her life, Greta, Rainbow also has to sell herself, uh, has to kind of live in that world where her body becomes a commodity for a man. Then in the third play, Ray and Joseph really horribly mistreat Helena and, and their drive for success, which again in that first scene is really constructed as this sort of masculine financial world, um, Helena ends up facing the consequences. At one point, Ray literally shoves her to the ground physically as he's describing how much he doesn't care about her, <laughs> how much the only thing that matters is his work, is his pursuit. Um, and then, of course, the women in that play, both in his dream and in reality, become sexual objects for him. 
Yeah, just over and over, this theme is is prevalent. It's 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 brought to a pretty specific head in in scene seven of 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 lust, or at least it's talked about directly in this scene where Helena confesses that she has uh, slept with another man, a boy. She says, um, a young boy. She says, who asked her if she was sick. Um, and, and she brings the kind of double standard to light of, of why, why am I being asked this when I know you're sleeping around? Um, are you ever asked this? Um, and he's like, no, no, I'm not, you should, you should get checked. You should really check and see if you have some sort of sexual disease or something like that. And she, she, she brings out the, 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 the double standard, the hypocrisy, the, the oppression of, I mean, really over and over as we've described each of these people of, of males in power. These males, males around these women who uh, have the have the have both the, the power in the system, but also the power of uh, of support slash information over them. Right. So you have the power of support in Pete in the first one where he is the source of money for the family. You have Ray, who has the power to either arrest uh, Rainbow for having stolen from him or you also have the dynamic of these uh, of, of him knowing the secret eventually of him of of her and Greta's love for each other. So you have that power dynamic as well. And then then the 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 situation of the vast imbalance in power between Joseph and Ray and Helena that you've already described. So so yeah, just consistently you see this theme brought up explicitly and implicitly in the relations in this play. Yeah, and of course the play is really everybody is a is oppressed or or not oppressed but is negatively impacted by this this world of uh, uh, of consumeristic exchanges being sort of the primary life motivator. Everybody is negatively impacted by that. But she does seem to point out that women especially face more deadly, more dangerous, more vile consequences that deal with their personhood. And, and men have an opportunity for success, which maybe women don't have implicitly because of the power and balances in the system. At the end of the play Lust, after her father has passed, Helena has a really painful monologue about her relationship with her father where she says he always wanted a son and in fact, if he had had a son that was like you, Ray, basically a monster, a heartless cruel, uh, you know, guy who's out to pursue success in his business no matter what the consequences, he still would have preferred that to having me as a daughter. And it, it's painful, and it, it's a moment where she stands up to Ray finally and claims a little agency for herself and her story after being told the whole play that she's a submissive, uh, passive, mentally unstable human being. And you hope that maybe this is a step for her, that like her, her father passing is going to lead her to something better. We know that her and Ray are not together in this uh, apocalyptic hellscape of, of capitalist destruction in the, in the fourth play, but we don't know exactly why. Right. Hope for the best for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some there's some potentially uh, heartbreaking information that she might be sick in some way. Um, that that maybe maybe lends into the the heartbreak that some more. But and 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 really, I, I do want to talk about that just a little bit. You know, we're we're coming down towards the end of the podcast, and oftentimes when we've talked about deep themes in a podcast, we will say at the end, this play is also funny, um, or, or there's some comedy in in this play. 
I don't I don't know if that is true of this play. Um and and the 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 the, the mood of this play. I mean imagine imagining sitting through this play. Um I, w- I wonder what the mood is. I would want I'm, and I'm curious what your uh uh thought is as far as like the space that we inhabit in this play is is a heavy one, I feel like. And there's not a whole lot of moments where you kind of break the surface and take a breath of fresh air. Maybe springtime has some of it, but it is in the midst well, of I, oppression. I, I think that the the general world of the play is is a disturbing one. I mean, play after play, you watch people uh, because of their need, in some cases for survival, uh, in, in some cases just for their own advancement for power and, and uh, some sort of addiction to continuing to grow. For whatever reason, they do pretty terrible things to each other. Uh, that's not all true in the fourth act or in the fourth play, but through the first three almost exclusively. But what ends up rising up rather than moments of comedy, although I think there might be some few moments of comedy, but what does rise up is those moments where people are kind. I mean, she makes a sort of impactful, beautiful, special, exquisite human um, uh, point about how the, the the power really of little kindnesses in that kind of world. I mean, you think about in in lust after everything we've seen from Ray and his terrible mistreatment of Helena and his his terrible relationship with his father-in-law and his addiction to sex and and all of that. Um, he brings in Birdie, who of course was somebody a member. He never met her before, but she was a member of the family. It's not clear exactly how much he knows about her previous marriage to his brother, but he brings her in um, to care for Helena. And there's a a lovely little moment where it's painful to ask because it tells you about Helena's mental state, where she is after all the mistreatment. But she asks, do you hate me? And Bertie says, oh, "No, I don't hate you." And and it's hmm, it's not a yeah. it's not a special moment, or it's not a moment of special kindness, but it's a moment of little kindness that Bertie is not the same as every other person in her life, and it stands out in the midst of the the hellscape that is play three of its own, right? Uh, right, right, right. And that's repeated into uh, hunger as well, too, with this odd angel character who you know is a little bit angel of death, but also agent angel of provision. Right, who's bringing food into the situation, which is followed up by Reba's really touching, uh, care-driven monologue. Yeah, and Birdie bringing bread for Ray and Charlie from the compound, whatever that is, you know, that's something she doesn't have to do. She seems to decide to do that for some reason. And of course, all of these moments of kindness are then followed up by moments of of the painful reality of the cruel world that these characters live amidst. You know, Birdie brings this loaf of fresh baked warm bread into a world where we think they eat like animal entrails for food. I mean, a terrible world. She brings fresh baked warm bread and Ray's responses to gripe about the fact that she's going to give the bigger piece to Charlie and yeah. why she would do that. And it's so what, what ends up happening rather than I think a juxtaposition of lighter comic moments with deep, dark things is you get a juxtaposition of human care, a, a, the human soul showing its goodness that become these little beacons of light in a play that is about the darkness of the world and and what a world 
based on money, power, um, uh, oppression does to the human soul. That makes me think of even the first scene where where Charlie uh, ends up standing up to Pete. Eventually, it's this moment of maybe victory, um, although it's a it's a, a tense victory, a tenuous victory that is then followed up by by uh, Birdie leaving. Um, so you you have these the yeah the 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 the, hum, the really human stories right. This is not a play that ties things into a bow. There's no like happy ending. There's no like uh, a, a climactic play structure where some sort of justice happens um, and and a denouement follows where the world is put back in order. This is a human play, and, and of- that's really because it's four plays, right? I mean, I it, it cannot be overstated the importance of this is four plays that are collected into a play collection that you watch, you know, one right after the other. But this is not one play where there's, uh, you know, a a consistent journey. Uh, You know, each play is really about different people. And they're the same characters at very different moments in their life, but they're different zoom-ins, right? I mean, we meet Rainbow in play one. We see this touching human dramatic play about her life with Greta in play two. And then we never see her again, but she is really the focus of play two. Uh, Play three is about Ray who we have met briefly at the end of play two, but has not appeared at any time before that. And he starts there and it kind of lives through the end of the play. Charlie who's in play one comes back as an old, old man in play four. And the the only real, the the person to me who's got the most consistent journey growth is birdie. And I think if you were trying to find one sweeping through character, you would probably point to Birdie. But of course, she's not in play two at all. So this is four plays, and they tell a story about the world, about the human soul together, but they don't tell a story about one character together. Each play is its own journey. Right, right. You don't have the benefit of knowing that Ray is at all connected to those people, to this family, until very late in the scene with him. Until you realize that Charlie is his brother, maybe, and oh, and Birdie's here, and then you start to put the pieces together. But you don't have the benefit of the character sheet to know that. So so watching the play is this kind of experience of a world, experience of the consequences of a world that is the way it is in the lives of these characters. Yeah, it's it's a highly symbolic, highly visual. It's got moments that are going to stick with you for their touchingness and for their disturbingness. I mean, and moments where both are true at the same time, right? When Greta discovers the pictures, these these risque pictures that Bird or uh, that Rainbow has been forced to take uh, because Ray caught her stealing his watch, and now he's paying her and all this stuff. She discovers that she's so upset and. Rainbow says, I don't mind. You must have treatment. It's for you. That's at the same time both touching because what she's willing to do to care for this person she loves and disturbing what she has to do to care for this person, the way that she's being used by this man in her life. I mean, the play is full of those kinds of moments too that leave you sort of reeling between the grasps for light, which are there, and the 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 disturbing reflection on the fact that you know unchecked the the human impulse to grab and control and own i mean joseph's joseph's uh, monologue about or um, joseph's monologue about the business being his 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 and pete's monologue about the money being his 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 from play 1 are are so they're they're so connected right they're tied right. they tie together those two moments 
Yeah, there is there's just so many of these moments that that provide resonance to each other, that feed off of each other. Even though it's four separate plays, they're all singing a harmony together and and just over and over. Like so many small scenes that we could talk about. We could dig into it more. We're alas at the end of our time, so we would like to kind of kick this conversation out into the internet sphere. If there is more that you would like to talk about uh in this play, uh what of the night, we would love to keep talking about this play. With you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a, uh, a Gmail, which is no script podcast at gmail.com. I found it. It was almost not there. Uh, we got the, <laughs> the username on all the social media sites is at no script podcast. You can find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. Absolutely. If you liked this episode or any of our other episodes, uh, please recommend the podcast to your friends and family. You probably know people who like theater, who like scripts. This is a great place for them to learn about new scripts, to suggest new scripts to us through our Gmail, to uh, prompt conversations with you, with others about scripts, so send them our way. They can find us at Podbean, which is where we're hosted, but we're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. If you connect with us on Facebook, you can see a link to the, the ad for the new episode coming up, as well as just a link to the new episode itself, easy to click on and listen to for the uh, technologically un, uh, unskilled people in your life. Uh, <laughs> they probably can use Facebook and just... Get that click and listen down. So send them there to connect with us as well. Yeah, so until next week when we are talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.